be starting a series on the parables of Jesus, which I'm excited about. We'll be taking a couple-week break for Christmas, but uh, then just diving into, over the next 12 weeks or so, the parables of Jesus. But today we're finishing Jonah. Hopefully over the course of the last five weeks you've been challenged and convicted and encouraged by the story of Jonah. Hopefully it's transformed the way you think about this story. My prayer is that that same thing would happen today, that we would be challenged, encouraged, convicted, that it would change the way we think about this story, and ultimately that it would help us have a better view of who God is. So let me pray, and then we'll start here. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for the story of Jonah. We thank you that we've had the privilege now for five weeks to study this book and to learn more about you. Ultimately, we recognize that the story of Jonah is a story about you. It's a story about your grace. It's a story about how you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that we're praying today, then, as we finish the book of Jonah, that ultimately our hearts would be drawn towards your son, Jesus Christ, that we would see that Jonah is speaking about him. And so, Father, as we study this forgotten chapter today, chapter 4, we're praying that you would challenge us, We're praying that you'd encourage. We're praying that you'd convict. Ultimately, we pray that we would love you more at the end of the day than when we started. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I've always admired the stories where someone runs into a burning building to rescue someone. There's something heroic. There's something respectable about a person running into a building when everyone else is running out of the building. And they're doing so because they have a care for someone else in that building. Perhaps it's because of my respect and admiration for those types of stories that I was both intrigued and at some level horrified by a couple of stories that I found online this week. Earlier this year in Olathe, Kansas, a man, this was in early 2014, a man in Olathe, Kansas, awoke in the middle of the night to discover that his house was burning in flames. He was able to make it safely out to the sidewalk, but once he got out to the sidewalk, he realized that he had left something valuable inside. In this case, it was not a child, it was not a relative, it was not even a pet, it was his Xbox. And so he was determined, given the value of what he felt the Xbox possessed, that he would run back into the house and rescue the Xbox. And so he went in and he was able to make it safely back out, although he did experience smoke inhalation. The paramedics had to treat him, eventually he was fine, and for those of you who are wondering, the Xbox, I guess, is still working. That story, though, pales in comparison to a similar story in Georgia of 2013. After safely escaping from his burning home, a Georgia man named Walter Serpent decided that he would risk going back into the burning home to rescue some beer that he had left behind. Now, what makes this story even more incredible is that Serpent walked with a cane. And so he risked, the fact that he's not able to walk normally very good, he goes back into the burning house And in this case, the door that he was planning on coming out became blocked, and so he's unable to go out. He eventually was able to make it out, and he told a local news station, and I quote, that he was able to save several cans of beer. It's hard to know exactly how to respond to those stories, to be honest. Uh, No doubt, it's admirable for a person to run back into a building to rescue a person. In my opinion, it is decidedly less heroic to run back into a burning building to rescue an Xbox or a few cans of beer. In fact, both of those stories seem to me like a case of seriously misplaced priorities. No matter how much you love playing Xbox, no matter how much you love drinking beer, risking one's life to rescue either one of those seems misguided. If you're willing to die for the sake of a few beers, your your priorities are probably a little out of whack. But as incredible and as troubling as those two stories are, there's one that happened just down the road in Stamford, Connecticut, In 2005, that's even more troubling in terms of misplaced priorities. And just so you think I'm not making this story up, let me quote directly here from an article that ran in the Washington Post. 
Here it is. Firefighters in Stamford, Connecticut, had to break a car window against the owner's wishes to rescue her 23-month-old son, whom she had accidentally locked inside along with the key. According to police reports in a 911 tape, the kid had been sweltering for more than 20 minutes on an 88-degree July day when the mother, who was later charged with reckless endangerment, asked firefighters to wait until she went home to get a spare key so they wouldn't have to damage her Audi A4. So, uh, in case... uh, that you didn't track with that. Here's what's happening, right? This is the firefighter and the policeman's version of what happened is that a mother locks her child inside the car on a hot July day. As we know, this is beyond dangerous. Every year you read about children who die in this situation. She discovers this to be the case. She calls the policeman, and then she asks them to wait longer because they, she does not want them to break the window on her luxury car risking her son's life for the sake of the window of this car. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, later on the woman did sue the city, claiming that that's not exactly what happened. But assuming there was some truth to the original report, I think we can all agree that there is something seriously wrong. There is something seriously misplaced when you prioritize the window of your car over the health of your 23-month-old son. The fact is that for all three of those stories, there is something troubling happening. When people are placing their Xbox or their beer over their safety, or when people are valuing their car over their children, something has been distorted. But as troubling as those stories are, particularly the last one, I would actually argue that we are a lot more like those people than we care to admit. Like the man running back into his house to save the Xbox, or the mom caring more about her car window than the baby, we too have misplaced priorities. We, too, fail to see things properly. We have become distorted in our own thinking, especially when you compare our priorities with God's priorities, especially when you compare the way that God thinks with the way that we think. And if any life demonstrates this, surely it is the life of Jonah. As we near the end of chapter 4 here, it's obvious to us that Jonah's values and his priorities are not God's values or God's priorities. There is a large gap between the two of them, between where Jonah is and the way he prioritizes things and the way that God prioritizes things. But as we study this passage today, I think we do well to remember that that gap exists for us as well, that there is a significant gap between God's priorities and ours as well. But before we dive into the end of chapter 4, let me just give a quick recap. For those who are here for the first time today or for those who have been in and out throughout the series of Jonah, let me just give you the brief summary of the book of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, God tells Jonah to go and preach against the wickedness of the city of Nineveh. Jonah is a prophet, and so you would expect that Jonah would go, but instead, as you remember from chapter 1, he flees in the opposite direction. He gets on a ship headed to Tarshish. And as he gets on the ship, it becomes obvious that God, in response to this rebellion, sends a storm on the sea. And Jonah, in his rebellion, is running farther and farther from God. He's going down below deck. The storm continues to rage, and the sailors are panicking. They're throwing everything overboard. They're trying to do everything they can to rescue the ship. But nothing will work until finally they come to the conclusion, rightfully, that they must throw Jonah overboard. And so they throw Jonah overboard. And at the end of chapter 1, Jonah is sinking helplessly to his death. Well, then comes the part of the story that you all know. God, in his mercy, sends the fish. The fish swallows Jonah. Jonah lives inside the fish for parts of three days and three nights. The fish spits Jonah onto dry land. And in chapter 3, Jonah is told to go back to Nineveh. Or, uh, more accurately, he's told to go to Nineveh. He's just told that the second time. And this time, Jonah goes. In chapter 3, we know very little about what Jonah says, other than he says, 
Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But something amazing happens. The people of Nineveh repent. They repent. They turn from their wicked ways. The, the Ninevites were some of the most wicked people alive at the time. And they repent of their sin. They fast. They put on sackcloth. And God relents of the disaster that he had threatened. And in chapter 4, surprisingly, we realize that Jonah is upset that this happened. This was the surprise of last week. You'd expect that as a prophet of God, he would be thrilled when people respond to his preaching. This is what preachers are supposed to do. They're supposed to rejoice when something good happens, when people respond to their message. But Jonah has the opposite reaction. Instead, he's angry. In fact, it says he's angry enough to die. And as we pick up the story today in chapter 4, verse 5, it's obvious to us that Jonah has not yet given up this hope that the Ninevites would be punished for their sin. And so that's where we pick up the story here in Jonah 4, verse 5. It says this, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. This is a pitiful picture. Jonah leaves the city, he makes himself a little shelter, and then he just sets up shop. It's as if he's waiting for the fireworks, or as if he's waiting for a movie to start. This is how casual he seems to be, and just waiting for the people of Nineveh to be destroyed. He is still holding out hope that the Ninevites will go back to their old ways, and that God will punish them the way that he wants them punished. This is a pitiful picture. And because Jonah does not seem to understand what's going on, because Jonah is such, in such a terrible spot, because he's simmering in his anger, God sends him an object lesson. Now, one of the things that is great about this story is that no matter how far Jonah runs, and he runs from God continuously, he's constantly rebelling against God. No matter how far he runs, God keeps pursuing him. That's the case here in chapter 4. Jonah is running again. He's sitting in his anger. And God in his love and mercy gives Jonah another chance to see the error of his ways. Verse 6 is what we read here. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now we're told here in verse 6 that God appoints a plant. To make it grow. This is not the first time we're told that God appoints an object in nature to do something. You may remember in chapter 1, he appoints the wind. He appoints the sea to rage. He appoints the fish to swallow. Now here, he appoints a plant. One of the great ironies of the book of Jonah is that things like fish and wind and plants and worms obey God, but the prophet of God does not. And so God appoints this plant to grow we're told that it's to save Jonah from his discomfort. Now, you may have a footnote in your Bible that says discomfort can actually be translated evil. That, that word can actually be translated either way, discomfort or evil. Now, I think discomfort is the better uh, translation here because it makes sense of the story that he's in discomfort because of the heat, and so God provides a plant. But I think the author is intentionally using a word that can be a double meaning. Yes, it's true that God is saving Jonah from his discomfort, but he's also looking to save Jonah from his evil. In other words, he's giving him this plant as a lesson to try to teach him something about his sinful attitude. But Jonah seems to be, uh, doesn't quite seem to get what's going on here. He's just happy that he has a plant. In verse 6, again, we're told that he was exceedingly glad because of this plant. Now, that's the same language that was used in verse 1 of chapter 4 when we are told that he was exceedingly angry because of the plant. 
The author here, I think, is using the same language to try to help us to see there is a serious disconnect with Jonah. He's exceedingly happy about this plant that is living, and he's exceedingly angry that God did not destroy the Ninevites. He's angry that God did not take the life of the Ninevites, but he's happy that God gives life to a plant. Do you see how messed up that is? He doesn't care about all these people perishing. In fact, he longs for them to perish. But this plant grows, and he couldn't be more happy. There is something seriously flawed about Jonah, and that's why God keeps pushing the lesson further. Verse 7. But when dawn came upon the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. A worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And so to recap here, what we see in first, verses 7 and 8, first there is no plant, and then God appoints a worm to eat the plant, and then he appoints a scorching wind to burn Jonah. One thing that's obvious in this book, and we'll return to this in a minute, is that God is in complete and total control of all things. He tells a worm what to do. He tells the wind what to do. He tells a plant what to do. He tells a fish what to do, and they obey. Understand this, there is no one like God. There's no one like him, and we'll return to that theme in a minute. But the question as it relates to this passage is, why is God doing all of this? Why would he appoint a plant only to have it die the next day? Why would he do this? Well, the answer is he's trying to teach Jonah a lesson. Verse 9, we continue to see the lesson here. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This is the same question that God asked Jonah in verse 4 of chapter 4. When Jonah was angry about the, lack, or the repentance of the Ninevites, he says, do you do well to do angry? Well, Jonah didn't respond in verse 4, presumably because he knew he was in the wrong. But he is growing in his audaciousness here. This time when God asked him, do you do well to do angry? Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry. In fact, angry enough to die. And it's at this point, when Jonah is stewing in his anger, that God presses the point just one last time in the book of Jonah. He's trying to help Jonah see the error of his ways, verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The logic of verses 10 and 11, I think, is not hard to follow. God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, you did not make this plant grow. It was here for a day, and then it was gone. And yet, Jonah, you love this plant. You pity the fact that it was gone. Then he says to Jonah, should I not care about the people of Nineveh? The people whom I formed and created, the people who were made in my image, 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. I think I did that the opposite, their right hand from their left, right? Which is just a Hebrew idiom of saying they were morally and spiritually blind. He's saying, if you care so much about this plant, should I not care about the people? Should I not care about these people that I created and formed? And when you think about it that way, you realize how utterly foolish Jonah looks here. He cares more about a plant that is dying than 120,000 people that he wishes were dead. 
In fact, I think that's why God adds this little bit about the cattle at the end. I think what he's saying, he's trying to push the point with Jonah a little bit. He's saying, even if you can't care about the people, perhaps you can at least care for the cattle, right? You care so much about a plant. Maybe you don't care about people, but maybe you'll sympathize with the fact that cattle will be destroyed too if I destroy Nineveh. He's pushing the point here with Jonah. He's getting him to see that Jonah is clearly in the wrong. Because as he makes this last statement about the cattle, it's increasingly obvious to us, there is something seriously wrong with Jonah here. God has to appeal for his love for plants. He has to appeal to his potential love for cattle to move him to care about 120,000 people that Jonah wants to perish. But make no mistake about it. What is going on here is not about a plant, ultimately. It's not about cattle, either. It's about God pointing out the idolatry in Jonah's heart. The thing with Jonah, it wasn't that he was upset that the plant had died. It's that his comfort had been disrupted. And more than that, he's upset because his plan didn't happen. He thought his plan was better than God's. And so when it doesn't happen, Jonah is upset. That's the real issue here. Jonah, in the book of Jonah, thinks that his plan and his way of thinking and his priorities are better than God's. Jonah values his comfort. Jonah values his plan. Jonah values what he thinks is best. But God has an entirely different set of values. And let's be clear. God is the one who's right. Jonah is the one who's wrong. If you think of it, this is a really sad picture at the end of Jonah. Jonah is sitting and cheering for people to be destroyed. That's essentially what he's doing. He's pulling up a seat, waiting for the people of Nineveh to be destroyed. But then when God destroys a plant, he wants to kill himself. He wants to die. There's something seriously wrong here. But as we've said so often in the book of Jonah, I think we need to realize that our story is his story. You need to understand that as Jonah is sitting under that plant, weeping over this plant, You need to understand that you are sitting there with him. His story is our story. It's true that there's a wide gap between God's priorities and Jonah's. But that same gap exists for us. God's ways are not our ways. And the sooner we can acknowledge that, and the sooner we can start to move in the direction of the things that he prioritizes, the better off we will be. One of the great lessons of the book of Jonah is that God is not like Jonah. Jonah is bitter. Jonah is angry. Jonah is slow to forgive. He comes across as a sad person. But God is decidedly unlike Jonah. God is gracious and merciful, abounding in love. Now make no mistake about it, he is just too. But he is not like Jonah at all. But the reality is he's not like us either. In fact, that's, that's the last thing I want us to see here in the book of Jonah, that he is not like us. To start with, his power is not like our power. As I've already mentioned, in this book alone, God tells a fish, a plant, the seed, the wind, and a worm to obey, and they all do. He tells a fish to swallow a person, and the fish does. He tells a fish to spit the person out, and the fish obeys. Listen, I don't care how powerful you are. I don't care how much influence you think you have. I don't care if you are the CEO of the largest company in the United States. I don't care if you are the most powerful politician. Your power is nothing compared to his power. It's nothing. 
Listen, even if you rise to the top of your profession, even if you end up with the biggest house in Westchester, even if you end up driving the nicest car, even if you end up becoming so powerful at work that when you walk in the room, people start to tremble because they're nervous to be around you, your power will be nothing compared to his power. There will never be a day when you command plants to grow and on the spot they grow. There will never be a day when you tell a worm to do something and the worm obeys. There will never be a day when you tell the wind to stop and the wind says, okay. And I can tell you this from personal experience. I lived in Amarillo, Texas for five years. Recently, there was a study that came out that was completely unsurprising for anyone who's ever lived there, that Amarillo is the windiest city in the United States. It is beyond windy. I kid you not that the trees in our backyard were bent in a certain direction. They did not grow straight up and down. They actually grew at an angle because the wind consistently blew that way. There were days where you could see dust clouds coming from miles away. There were days where you physically had to concentrate to not get knocked over because of the wind. I'm not kidding. It is a really windy place. There were plenty of times where I wished the wind would not blow, but it never listened to me. It didn't. It didn't, and it wouldn't listen to you either. And it doesn't listen to anyone else in Amarillo, rest assured. Why? Because I don't have that power. Neither do you, but God does. He's not like us. He has power that we do not have. Now, what's interesting, I think, is that we often forget how powerful he is, and instead we become obsessed with people who have power here. We wonder about our bosses. Do they like us? We think about the powerful parent at school who's in charge of the PTA. Did did they like to be around us? We wonder what kind of decisions politicians are going to make. We even obsess over celebrities. We wonder about the latest gossip because we become focused on those who are in power. And yet, comparatively, we think very little about the one who has actual power. I would suggest that we should be less concerned with what our bosses think of us and more concerned with what the one who has authority over all things thinks of us. I would suggest that we should be less concerned about our politicians and the decisions that they make and more concerned with pleasing the one who will reign on the throne forever and ever. I would say that we should be less worried about what some powerful parent at the school thinks of us and more concerned with whether our Heavenly Father approves of us. Now, as we've said so often, the only way that we're approved is through his son, Jesus Christ. But my point is this. There's no one like him. We tend to gravitate towards power. But let's remember, there's only one who has true power. Let's dedicate our thinking. Let's dedicate our lives to living for him. Because make no mistake about it, no matter who your boss is, or no matter how powerful that parent is at the school, or no matter what politician we're talking about or what celebrity, their power is nothing. It's nothing compared to the power of God. There is no one like him. This is the case we've seen throughout Jonah. Jonah tries to manipulate situations again and again and again, but it never works. But God speaks to things. He appoints things, and it happens exactly as God wants because no one is like him. His power is not like our power. Now, we also see in this passage that his priorities are not like our priorities. Now, we may scoff here at Jonah. Jonah, how can you be so upset about this plant? Or we may shake our head at the guy who runs back in the house to save his beer. Or the woman who cares more about her car than her kid. But the fact is, we too are just like him. Are just like him. There's such a large gap between the things that we should prioritize and the things that we actually do. To say it another way, there's a large gap between the things that God values 
which are the things that we should value and the things that we actually do. This is perfectly displayed in the case of Jonah. Jonah should care about people. He should care about God's will. He should care about God's kingdom being advanced. But instead, he cares about his comfort and his plan and his desires. But how often do we do the same thing? How often do we find ourselves living for comfort or living for things that are foolish in comparison to living for the things that God cares about? Because I think uh, scripturally, you have to make the argument that God is most passionate about his own glory. He's most passionate about his glory. That's not because he's in need of compliments or need of praise. It's because he knows that that is what will satisfy us. Scripture is also clear that the way that we glorify him is by repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ. In this way, the kingdom of God advances in us because we turn from our sin and we turn to Christ. God is living for his glory. He's living for the advancement of his kingdom. The question is, is that what we are living for? Is this our priority? Is our priority to make much of him? Is our priority to bring glory and honor to him? Is our priority to advance his kingdom? Or are our priorities something else? What is it that you prioritize the most? All too often we care about stuff, right? Money, sex, clothes, success, cars, houses, vacations, retirement accounts, our families, our health, more than we care about the kingdom of God. Let me just ask you a few hypothetical questions. If you had to choose between losing everything, and by everything, I mean everything. You had to choose between losing your family, losing your kids, losing your spouse, losing your money, losing your job, losing your reputation, losing everything, or losing Christ, which would you choose? And I know what you'd say in the Sunday school answer. I know what you'd say when you're at church, like, I wouldn't want to lose Christ. No, I'm asking you, what would you really choose? If the choice was before you, and you had to choose between losing everything, losing your reputation, losing your house, losing your way to make a living, or losing Christ, what would you choose? If the choice, and this is a question I've asked before, if the choice was between your kids knowing Christ and ended up being homeless, or your kids growing up to be successful and have a reputation and a job that's honorable, but not knowing Christ, which would you choose? If you knew that one of your family members was going to get a terminal illness, maybe, maybe a parent, maybe a spouse, maybe one of your kids, and through that terminal illness, they would come to know Christ, and so would many others. Or on the other hand, that person can live a long and healthy life but never know Christ, what would you choose? Now, thankfully, we don't have to make those decisions. Those are things that are, for the most part, out of our control. I think they're still worth asking. And here's why, because it reveals where our priorities are. Do you value the things that he values? Listen, if if I'm being honest, I probably get more worked up when my favorite team loses a game or when I can't find that pair of socks I'm looking for than I do about the fact that the people down the street don't know Christ and that there are billions of people around the world who will never hear about Jesus and will go to hell because they have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that some of it is out of sight, out of mind, right? Not being able to find the pair of socks that affects my daily life, whereas thinking about people in Yemen who've never heard about Jesus, that just doesn't cross my mind that often. But the fact that I'm more concerned about those things surely says something about my priorities. It says that there's something misplaced in my life. And here's the problem with not prioritizing what he prioritizes. 
It leads to misery. It always will lead to misery. We were made to live for God's glory and to live for anything else. When we fail to do that, it will only end up leading to frustration and misery. If not here in this life, certainly in eternity. Listen, if you are not prioritizing the things that he prioritizes, if you are not living for the things that are near and dear to his heart, eventually, if not now, it will lead to misery. Jonah's life is a perfect example of this. Jonah does not care about God's plan. Jonah does not care about God's glory. Jonah cares about his comfort and his plan. And at the end of the story, one thing is obvious. Jonah is miserable. Over and over and over in chapter 4, he talks about how he wants to die on at least three separate occasions. He is miserable. And it's not because he's hot. It's not because it's windy. It's because he's not in agreement with God. And what we need to understand is that until we prioritize the things that he prioritizes, until we care about the things that he cares about, there will be an element of dissatisfaction for us as well. Listen, some of you in here today are really struggling with dissatisfaction. You are really struggling with being content. And part of the reason is because you're not prioritizing what he prioritizes. The reason why life feels like such a struggle, the reason why it feels like you're just not able to find that elusive joy is because you have not set your mind on the things that he prioritizes. Have you ever wondered why so many celebrities are miserable? I remember before I came to know Christ, this was something I always found perplexing. They have so much money. They can have any relationship they want. They have fame. They can go anywhere they want. They can do whatever they want. How is it that so many celebrities' lives are so messed up? How is it that so many of them are addicted to drugs and how so many of them are, are suicidal or so many of them are on their fifth marriages? How does this happen? Well, it's because their priorities don't match up with his. You were made to live for God's glory. And to live for anything else will leave you miserable. Listen, the answer to your problems is not winning the lottery. You may think it is, but it's not. The answer to your problems is not getting a new spouse or for your kids to go off to college or finding a new job or getting a new house. You may think those things are the case, but it's not true. Listen, the answer to our misery is to live for Christ and the things that he cares about. I'm not saying it'll make our lives easier, but I'm saying it'll lead to joy and peace and a sense of purpose. So I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying that we should live Matthew 6, that we should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The question is, are you doing that? Do your priorities match up with his? Do you care about the things that he cares about? Do you love the people that he loves? And, and that's the last thing I think we see here in the book of Jonah, is that God's love is not like our love. As we, in chapter 4, it's obvious that Jonah has no love for the people of Nineveh. Jonah's picture of love looks like this, that God should love people who are worthy and God should love people who are like him. And since neither of those fit the category for the Ninevites, Jonah has no space in his heart for him. But there is a vast difference between God's love and Jonah's love. There's a vast difference between our love and God's love. It's obvious that God loves even the rebel. It's obvious that God loves even those who are not Israelites, which is the issue that Jonah has here. In fact, he loves them so much that he would send his prophet Jonah to preach a message of repentance to a wicked people like the Ninevites. And of course, that's only a shadow of what he would do later when he would send his son to preach a message of repentance to a wicked people also. But this time, his son wouldn't just preach a message, he would lay down his life so that we might live. 
Listen, the overwhelming theme of the book of Jonah is the grace of God. Grace for Jonah, grace for the Ninevites, grace for the sailors, and ultimately grace for us. That's the good news of this book. It's true that the gap between Jonah and God is large. The gap between us and God is large too. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His priorities are not our priorities. His power is not our power. His love is not our love. But God bridged that gap by sending his son. Jesus prioritized the things that we should have prioritized. Jesus prioritized the things that we would prioritize if we just knew better. Jesus loved the people that we couldn't love. And by repenting of our sins and trusting him, the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. The gap that exists between us as God, Jesus bridged that gap by living the life we could not live. God's love is most clearly displayed in that he sent his son to die for us and to take the punishment for sin that we deserved. His love is completely and totally unlike Jonah's in this case. He loved when we were still unlovable. He loved when the Ninevites were still unlovable. He loved us when we still hated him. I've said before that Jonah or that Jesus is the better Jonah. And that's true. In the same way that Jesus or that Jonah was in the heart of the fish for three days and three nights, Jesus was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. In the same way that Jonah went and preached a message of repentance to wicked people, Jesus went and preached a message of repentance to wicked people. He just did it better. That's why he's the better Jonah. But in other ways, Jesus is not like Jonah at all. In other ways, he's the anti-Jonah. Whereas Jonah disobeyed, Jesus always obeyed. Whereas Jonah questioned God's plan, Jesus always obeyed God's plan. Whereas Jonah's love was limited, Jesus' love extended to all people. Whereas Jonah was not like God, Jesus is and was God. Listen, the exceedingly good news for us is that, yes, we're messed up like Jonah, but God sent his son to pay the punishment for our sins. And amazingly, get this, if we believe in him, his spirit lives in us. And so while it's true, there's a large gap between us and God. If his spirit lives in us, as time goes by, we should increasingly start to be more like his son. And we should increasingly start to care about the things that he cares about and prioritize the things that he prioritizes and love the people that he loves. And that's why I love the way this book ends. Because it ends with an open-ended question. We never do find out, did Jonah repent? Did Jonah realize the wrong of his ways? We never find out because this story doesn't end with a conclusion. It ends with a question. Look again at verses 10 and 11. It says this. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This book ends very strangely. It ends with an unanswered question. And here's why I think it does that. Because we are meant to answer that question. Should God care about the Ninevites? Yes, he should. Should we care about the Ninevites? Absolutely. When I went on my mission trip to Turkey in the summer of 2002, we went to lots of places that were off the grid. In fact, there was one place that I may have mentioned before that the tourist books told us we should never go to the city. It said, do not go to this place unless you have a compelling reason to do so. Well, I guess our compelling reason is that they told us we needed to go there. Our mission team did. And so we went 
It was hard to get there. On the way, we were pulled off, by the, uh, off the bus by the military. When we got there, there's people with guns all over the place. But here's what happened when we got there. We went to this coffee shop, and we, we found a person. And as we started to talk about Jesus, it became obvious to us that this person had never met a Christian. This person had never heard anything about Jesus. This person had never seen a Bible in their entire life. We were the first and perhaps the last person who ever had a chance to tell them about Jesus. This was in the middle of nowhere in eastern Turkey. And the thing is, the Bible is clear. Unless a person hears about Jesus, they can't be saved. In other words, that conversation we had with that person that day may have been the only chance they had. The only chance they had. And I've thought often, especially this week as I was thinking about this passage, how many other people were in that city that day who will be born, will live and die and never hear about Jesus? Should we care about those people? Yeah. Now listen, there's a reason why it tells you not to go to that city, why the tourist book does, because there's some scary stuff that happens. And I'm sure there's lots of wicked things that have happened. But should we care about those people in the middle of eastern Turkey who have never heard about Jesus? Yes. Should we care about the Ninevites? Yes. Should we care about the neighbor down the street who has never trusted in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Should we be filled with mercy for the coworker who has yet to experience the grace of Christ? Yes. Should we hurt for our uncle or cousin who grew up in the church but has now rejected Christ? Yes. Should we care about that person in the middle of Yemen or the middle of Oman or the middle of wherever it is that has never heard about Jesus? Yes. Yes. Yes, the book of Jonah is a message about grace, a grace that benefits us, a grace that is shown to us through Jesus, but a grace that we are meant to share also. I think that's why the passage ends the way it does, because it's trying to press us to ask the question, should we love like he loves? Should we have the type of grace that he has? Should we care about the Ninevites? Yes, we should. Yes, we should. Listen, the book of Jonah as I hope you know by now, is not about a fish. It's not. It's not about Jonah. It's not about the Ninevites. It's about God. It's about a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who loves people generation after generation that ultimately culminated in him sending his son Jesus Christ so that we could have life. That is the message of the book of Jonah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you show us. We thank you for the grace that you showed Jonah, for the grace that you showed the Ninevites as an example to us of the grace that is available to us. Father, we recognize that the gap between us and you is large, that your power is not like our power, that your priorities are not like our priorities, that your love is not like our love. But we thank you that you sent your son to bridge that gap. And God, we are praying We're praying that we would be more like him. We're praying that our priorities would bend more and more towards yours. We're praying that our hearts would be drawn into line with your desires and your will. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen.